left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. It's a proactive process, much as they call this passive investing. There's one piece of passive investing that's anything but passive, and that is finding the right sponsors to invest with. That is a very active component of this exercise, and it's really important that you spend time trying to find the right sponsors to invest with. Then once you've found them and vetted them, then you can switch to a more passive role and wait for them to present opportunities to you. This is Whitney Sewell from LifeBridge Capital. You are listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors? Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely Form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at $25,000, but I've seen investment minimums as high as $100,000 or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out TribeVest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim, we are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Left Field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. So today, I'm uh, thankful to have Brian Burke, the CEO and founder of Praxis Capital with us today. He's also author of The Hands-Off Investor, which, as I've said repeatedly, is my favorite passive investing book by far. He started in real estate at age 19, and he's been doing this for 30 years, 20 of those years as a syndication sponsor with thousands of units worth over $500 million. He's raised over $100 million from investors without ever losing a penny of investor capital. So, Brian, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. It's great to be here, Jim. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. So, how I'd like to start is if you could kind of talk about your journey. You know, you've been in real estate 30 years. I know you you did a ton of single family homes and now you're in sponsor with uh, doing apartments. If you could kind of just 
tell our listeners a little bit about that journey. Well, you know, the journey started out very simple, like most uh, new real estate investors, you know, just doing one house at a time. And that's, it was a very humble beginning. I had no knowledge in real estate. I had no connections. I had no money. I had no advantage and figured, you know, real estate's perfect for me. I've got everything I need, or, uh, <laughs> or I should say the lack thereof. So I, I made my first real estate investment. And when I was 20 years old, I kind of started, you know, looking around when I was, uh, when I was like 18 or 19. And then uh, I never looked back. I grew the business very slowly. You know, I had very humble beginnings. You know, I was doing a house every couple of years at the beginning. And then that just kind of grew over time. And eventually, I was really focused on uh, buying properties in foreclosure. And there was a ton of foreclosures, if you remember, in the 2009 to 2011 time space. During that period, it was kind of like, finally, what our business was built for had arrived. And we just had massive, massive growth. And we were raising a lot of money from investors to facilitate that growth. We were buying 120 houses a year in the San Francisco Bay Area and fixing them up and reselling them. We bought a about 120 rental houses that we uh, did on a buy and hold model in the, here in the Bay Area during that period. And, and, and it was kind of like, well, what are we going to do when all these foreclosures are gone and we've built this great machine and we've got all these investors and they, you know, they're really happy with us? Are we just going to you know, fizzle off into oblivion or are we going to find a new strategy? And and that was when we really started turning our focus much more heavily to multifamily. I made my first multifamily investment 19 years ago. And um, so it was a business that we already knew, but it was the obvious place to go for scalability and sustainability of this great business that we'd built. And thank gosh, we, I'm really glad we made that decision because uh, we never looked back and we've done nothing but grow ever since we made that call. When you got into the multifamily were you, and you're doing the syndications, I know you're doing a fund now, but were you doing single asset acquisitions at that point? Yeah, we started out in single asset syndications on the, on the, on the multi side. On the single family side, we always did funds. You know, we, everything we did in the single family side, we'd, we'd raise one fund and we'd acquire numerous houses through one fund vehicle. And we got really good at administering very complex funds. I mean, you know, we were doing some really interesting accounting stuff, uh, accommodate investors who were coming and going and, and really learn the ropes of fund administration during that period. But when we turned to multifamily, you know, we didn't have as extensive of a track record on the multifamily side. Certainly we'd done a few deals, but we didn't have thousands and thousands of units to fall back on to show our investors how we can perform. So it was really important that we were able to show people the deal itself and the underwriting and really get down into the nuts and bolts of each investment on a very granular level. And the only way to do that is by doing a single asset syndication. And so I think it was like our first single asset syndication was rather small. I think we raised 600000 or something like that for a 54-unit foreclosed multifamily property. And then after that, it was just a few months later we did another one where we had to raise 2.3 million for a 120 or 130 unit or something like that. And it literally took us 18 months to raise 2.3 million. And when I look back on that now, it's like we just raised 25 million in like three weeks. So <laughs> we've come a long way for sure. Yeah, that, that is, that's crazy. Now you're doing the fund model. Can you talk a little bit about why you're doing that now as opposed to the uh, single asset? Yeah, well, there's a few reasons. 
One is we were noticing all of our single asset syndications were oversubscribing and we always had people that were missing out and, and didn't make it in. Another is it's very, very competitive out there and we needed all the advantages we could capture to make sure that we were the chosen buyer of assets that had competitive offers. And when uh, a seller hears from one buyer that they have to go raise money and they hear from another buyer they have discretionary capital at the ready, which one are they going to choose? All else being not even necessarily equal, but maybe even just close. So we needed to, to do that to improve our how competitive we were on the acquisition side. And then we wanted to be able to provide our investors with more diversification because you always have you know assets that are just killing it. And then you have other assets that are just dogging you. And it, I don't care how good you are, you always will have that when you have a lot of properties. And if you put them in a fund, they kind of all blend together. You don't have one set of investors that is like getting 40% return and another set of investors that's getting an eight. And you, know, and you have some people that are singing your praises at the same time where others are going like, what are you guys doing over there? So investors need that smoothing out so that they can eliminate it or at least minimize those single points of failure by investing in multiple assets. So the fund gave us that ability to create that diversification for our investors. And finally, and very importantly, I don't want this to be lost on, on people who are considering doing a fund and have yet to do so. But one of the most important reasons was we felt that we could raise the capital. And you know we had an extensive enough track record in single asset syndication that our investor base is very loyal. We've raised over 200 million now. We knew that people would trust us to make the right decisions. And that's a key distinction between single asset syndication where you get to analyze the deal yourself versus a fund scenario where you're basically trusting the sponsor to buy the right stuff. We felt that we'd been doing this long enough where we'd had that trust with our investors. And if we hadn't, we wouldn't have made that move. That makes sense. So you talked about smoothing out the results. And in, in your book, you mentioned one thing you like about real estate is you don't have to wake up every morning wondering if you're rich or if you're poor. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I was, uh, I, it was probably about 22 years ago. I had this brilliant idea that I could make a lot of money trading commodities futures. So I opened up a trading account, put some money in it, and uh, at the time, I was still working in my law enforcement job, and I was uh, I was working the graveyard shift. Actually, I, was, I think most of the time I was getting off around five o'clock in the morning. So what I would do is, right as I would get off work at five a.m., I would call my broker and I'd place a trade, and then I'd go to bed, I'd go to sleep, I'd wake up the next morning, and I'd look and see, you know, now the trading day is halfway through, how well did I do? And you know, over time, I was I was making money, making money, and it was, I was really excited, and I was making some really smart trades. And then all of a sudden, in an instant, one day, boom, the whole account was gone. Commodities futures is like that. It's a very, very volatile investment, and you really have to know what you're doing. Real estate is like the opposite of trading commodities futures. The battleship turns so slowly that it doesn't. You don't get into this flip a light switch kind of thing. Most of the time, you know, there's certainly things that can happen, like COVID did to hotels, for example. But it's pretty rare, and especially on the residential side, that you have, you know, one single event that instantly causes you to be, you know, flat out broke. So also, one, one other thing in the, in the book that I liked that you said, I mean, there's plenty, but just one other thing I wanted to touch on here 
you say the goal of any investor is to eliminate like a single point of failure by diversifying among sponsors, locations, and, and property types. So in our group, left field investors, we have quite a few newer investors. So how would you say that someone could find those sponsors or find those different asset types if you're just starting out? Yeah, you know, there's a there's a section in the book I dedicated just on how to find these opportunities, right? Because one of the things about investing in syndicated real estate offerings is the majority of them are done under an exemption of the securities laws that prohibits the sponsor of those investments from advertising their very existence. So therefore, this is a little bit kind of like what you would call a, uh, a country club or you know an insider's club kind of a deal where you have to know someone who knows someone. And that's a little bit about how this, how this crazy space works. So I go through a whole laundry list of different things that people can do to try to find who these sponsors are, you know, not the least of which are listening to podcasts, uh, doing internet searches, looking at websites, looking at uh, broker sales records, you know, the, sometimes like the big multifamily brokers will say like, here's the top 10 buyers in Phoenix this year, and they'll list out who they are. And a lot of those are syndicators. So there's, there's a lot of different ways, but it's a proactive process. You know, as much as they call this passive investing, there's one piece of passive investing that's anything but passive. And that is finding the right sponsors to invest with. That is a very active component of this exercise. And it's really important that you spend time trying to find the right sponsors to invest with. Then once you've found them and vetted them, then you can switch to a more passive role and wait for them to present opportunities to you. So once you know who to invest with, you know, finding opportunities is easy. They'll be telling you when they appear. So how do you vet the sponsor then? That's the next question, right? You've, you found them now through these different avenues, but how do you make sure that they're the right sponsor to invest with? Well, the, the first thing is in the what not to do column. Don't just look at a grid of investment options and pick the one that has the highest projected return. Uh, that's probably the worst thing you can do. So when you're vetting a sponsor, there's a lot of steps to go through to make sure that they're a good fit for you. To start with, you want to learn a lot about their business history, how long they've been doing it, how many uh, deals they've done, have they full cycled? In other words, have they not, not just taken off, but have they landed the plane and sold a, a deal and actually returned investors' capital and produced a result? A little bit about uh, some of their previous returns and how those returns compared to their projections is always some, something handy their level of experience, how many uh, units they've had under management, all of these different things. There's about, I think, I think there's a bonus content of the book. If you order it straight from the publisher, there's a list that comes with it. It's like not 90 something questions to ask, but you know, don't ask them. These are all questions you need answers to. It doesn't mean you need to ask them. It just means somewhere you got to find these answers because there's a lot of things you need to know. But really what it all boils down to, what you're really trying to do when you're, when you're vetting a sponsor is you're trying to quantify, I know this is difficult, but you're trying to quantify the quality of their character. And you know, this is a really uh, nuanced and subjective thing to attempt to do. But if you think about it, like, you know, if you were dating and trying to decide if, if this potential uh, mate would make a good spouse for you, there's a lot of things you need to know about them. And this is the same thing when you're vetting a sponsor, you want to get to really know who they are and how they think and whether they're compatible with you before you just jump in the pool. Right. And typically these conversations you have with sponsors, 
you know, you call them up and, and you talk to them for a half hour, an hour, you know, an hour if you're lucky. How do you get all the information in just that conversation? You won't. What you'll get is a little bit of a feel, right? You'll you'll hear what they say and listen to their story and see if their story makes sense. But then then the onus shifts to you to do your research. So that you know the conversation is just like the the spark that lights the flame. Now you got to put some gas on it and a little bit of uh, oxygen to get that flame to really go. And by that, the steps that would follow would be things like, you know, if, if they're on some podcasts, listen to them. If anybody puts my name into like iTunes or whatever, they'll find 50 podcasts or whatever. And they can go listen to all of them and hear all the different things I'd have to say. Do that for any sponsor that you're thinking of investing with. Listen to the things they have to say and see if what they say makes sense or if it sounds like they don't know what they're talking about. Look at their uh, materials. They, w- when you get off that phone call, hopefully the person you talk to is going to send you some information about the company. It might be a corporate slide deck. It might be some details on their uh, last closed offering that they just funded or whatever that might be. Look at all those materials and, and glean all the pieces of information out of them that you can. Like I told you about that question list has like 90 something questions on you. Go through that list. You should be able to fill in almost all of those answers just off of the written materials that they supplied you and the information you got off that phone call. If you can't, then that sponsor might not be a good fit for you because they're not anticipating your questions and giving you the answers without you even asking them. A really experienced and good sponsor will know what you need to know and will give you what you need to know. But you're going to have to read all the stuff and go through it and do your homework. Okay. So it's it's not just as easy as finding somebody and you like them and then off you go, right? You got to do a little bit of work to get to the passive point. I, li- I like the way you said that. So now that we've vetted the sponsor and we're good with them. You know, in our group, we kind of say the next thing is the market and the last thing is the deal. So can you talk a little bit about how you pick markets? Because I'm I'm picking a sponsor and then I'm kind of looking at the market based on what the sponsor, where the sponsor decides to invest. So how do you pick a market? Our market criteria is is very simple on the surface, but a little bit more complicated when you dive in. We're investing in markets where people are moving to. And it's really that simple is, is, you know, so we're not buying in California. People are leaving California, even though we're based here, people are leaving here, but where are they going? They're going to Phoenix. They're going to Las Vegas. They're going to Tucson. They're going to Boise. They're going to Salt Lake City. They're going to Portland. People are leaving New York City in droves. And where are they going? They're going to the Carolinas. They're going to Florida. They're going to Texas. Californians are going to Texas. They're getting hit from both sides. Uh, so if, if you look at these markets where people are moving to, those are great places to invest if you're a multifamily investor because you're investing in housing. And when you increase, when you have population growth and you have household formation, you have pressure on the demand side of real estate. And so that is a primary factor in rent growth and market strength. What we don't want to invest in is we don't want to invest in places where people are leaving. We don't want to invest in one-horse towns that rely on only one industry, where the failure of that single industry could tank the entire city. Uh, We don't want to invest in places where you get a good deal because you're the only one bidding on the property. As much as people are, they're so, it just cracks me up. You hear investors like, oh, I'm going to go to, you know, Tumbleweed, Iowa, because no one is buying stuff there and I can get a great deal. Well, then when they go to sell and they struggle to get a single offer on the property, they wonder like, well, how, where's all the buyers? How come I can't get rid of this thing? 
you know, I, I like being in markets where there's a lot of competition, where there's, a you know, we, we could have 15, 20 offers on a property that we're trying to buy. But guess what? When we go to sell, there's going to be 15 or 20 offers from people trying to buy it from us. I like that liquidity. So we want to be in markets that have that liquidity, markets that have a little bit of scale where there's a, there's a lot of product for us to choose from, not just, you know, we own the only multifamily property in, in the whole city. We don't want to be in those markets. So really, we're looking for income growth, job growth, and population growth. In today's economy, income growth uh, and job growth are a bit elusive, but they'll be back. So if you look in places where you have population growth, that will eventually lead to job growth and income growth, which leads to rent growth, which leads to increased exit pricing, which leads to good returns for our investors. Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing? I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly. And that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast. And it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California. And we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy. And it helps you take the most important step, the first one. If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives. How do you get those deals, right? You said if you're, you, you like to be in a market that has 15 or 20 people bidding on a deal, that's great if you're selling. But if you're buying, how do, how do you stand out? How do you, how do you get that deal without overpaying? Well, it really comes down to having a very good reputation uh, with brokers and with sellers and having captive capital. We used to rely solely on our reputation with brokers and sellers. You know, there's, there's guys that we've bought from before. They know how we act in an escrow. So they want to work with us because there's no risk for them. Brokers want to, you know, we had one broker say, I wish I could sell you all of my deals because, you know, our, our goal is to make the broker's life easy. We don't want to create a lot of drama. So that's, that's really important. And, and those relationships are, are invaluable. So really a lot of it is relationship. The other piece, which is new to us, but we found it really makes an incredible difference was for us having that captive capital because we used to be in that bucket of saying, you know, we are, we raise money from our clients and blah, blah, blah. 
And that worked for us for a number of years and we got a lot of deals, but now it's even more competitive. And now we're up against Blackstone and, you know, some of these other groups, you know, as our price point has increased, we're up against more sophisticated operators who have captive capital and we can't be the only one at the party that doesn't. So having captive capital is very important right now for us. We looked at the sponsor and the market. Now, you know, we're down to the deal. Can you talk about maybe if you're a passive investor and you're trying to analyze a deal, what are two or three metrics that you think are most important to making sure the deal fits your parameters or what you want to invest in? When there's a, there's a number of things that there's kind of two different ways to answer this question. There's one way of the parameters of the deal fitting what you believe. And there's the, also the way of making sure that the underwriting of the deal makes sense. So let's start with the side of uh, making sure it's a fit for you. This comes down to just what you believe in. You know, are you the type of investor where you like to be in that class C and D property that has a potential huge upside, but can face all sorts of challenges in, in executing that business plan? Are you okay with those kinds of additional risks in exchange for a potential higher reward? Or are you uh, more in kind of preservation of principle mode where you want to get a good return, but you want a lower amount of risk? And so you're looking more kind of in that class A and B space and maybe less so in the C uh, space. So, you know, the, the, the main factor here for you is your risk tolerance and the risk elements of the deal that you're looking at and making sure that those two are in alignment with one another. Okay. And then once you figure that out, is there, you know, you had in, in the book, you, you had a ton of different specific metrics like, you know, um, break-even occupancy or s- some of those things. Are there any metrics that if you saw a number outside of your range that you'd say no to a deal? I know that's kind of a vague question, but like I'm trying to find like a specific couple of metrics that, that you really focus on if you're a passive investor. I feel like, it's very difficult to allow one data point to drive your decision. Generally, you really want to take a step back and look at this from a higher level. Look at this from the 30,000 foot level. Look at the totality of, the, of everything. Because there's a scenario where any deal killing single data point could totally make sense in the right, in the right scenario under the right circumstances. Like I had a guy the other day that was asking something about cap rate. Is there a specific delta between cap rate and prevailing debt interest rates that would indicate to me that the deal is good? In other words, if I can borrow the money at three and a half and the cap rate is a five, that's a 1.5 difference. Uh, does that mean it's a good deal in and of itself? And, and the answer is, well, no, uh, because you know it could be a 2% cap rate with a three and a half percent debt rate. And still be a great deal if rents are $250 below market, the property is 70% occupied, it's being totally mismanaged, it's in a market with 10% annual rent growth. You know, when you factor in all those things, you could have an absolute grand slam on a ridiculously low cap rate. So it's, it's, uh, it's very tempting to want to find that one single uh, data point, but there really isn't any one single data point. You really need to look at all of them and make sure that the whole scenario makes sense. So the way we look at it, and tell me if you would agree with this, is you look at the sponsor the most, and you really dig deep and you find out everything you can about the sponsor, get comfortable there. Then you find out what markets they're in. And as long as they're, they're in 
population growth, income growth, if you can get it, wage growth, all that. And then when you're looking at the deal, you look at more than just a few metrics. You look at them all and just kind of make sure that they're in line. And then that's where you would pull the trigger and say, yeah, this deal is good for me. Yeah, there's a whole chapter, maybe even two in the book that deal with the various analysis components of real estate. And and my intent in the book isn't to teach people how to be a real estate investor any more than, you know, I might try to teach a building inspector how to be a contractor. But that building inspector needs to know basic construction techniques in order to catch problems in a contractor's construction. Same goes here is the passive investor needs to have a, a basic foundation of knowledge in real estate analysis so that they can look at what the sponsor is presenting them and see if it really makes sense or if there's a problem here. And so a number of things to look at are things like first year income compared to historical income. If there's a huge jump in the income projection in the very first year over what the property did in the previous year, uh, that would be a red flag to me and a reason to ask the sponsor how they feel that they're going to be able to accomplish that. Because very oftentimes I see sponsors projecting this astronomical rent jump that they're going to get by renovating units and they have the jump in their financials as if it were to occur day one. Like we closed escrow on Monday and Tuesday we raised everybody's rent 200 bucks. And it doesn't work like that. You know, it's going to take you two years to renovate all those units. You have leases that expire at different times throughout the year. It's going to take three years to get those rents ramped up to where you're saying that they are. And if you put all of that, if you attribute all of that increase into year one, you're going to miss your mark. And so, you know, that's just one in five seconds you can look at a deal and you can tell if the sponsor is being overly optimistic. There's other things like uh, the loan to value ratio. That's going to give you a measurement of how much risk you're taking on. If they're borrowing 90% of the capital stack, that's an increased position of risk. And if the, the first thing that goes wrong is going to cost everyone dearly. The default ratio is a, is a ratio I talk about in the book that really is another way to think of the default ratio is kind of like a break-even point. It basically says, if your default ratio is 85%, that means that your income can fall 15% below projected before you get to a break-even cash flow. So anything over an 85% default ratio is, a, is an intense amount of risk. So looking at that is important. What rent growth is the sponsor factoring in and where did they come up with that number? Did they just make it up or do they have some third-party economists outside of their organization that they're getting that information from. Vacancy factors. Uh, are they saying, well, the property's 98% occupied, so I'm going to presume it's going to stay there. But it's 98% because the rents are $200 below market. And when they bring the rents up to market, the, the property is going to go to market vacancy, which is 7%. Did they account for that? All of those little nuances are all different pieces that you want to look at to make sure that the story in its total makes sense. Because you do have to get comfortable with the real estate investment. Now, having said all of that, if you chose your sponsor well, chances are that the deal that they're going to present you with is going to be very well underwritten, but not necessarily always so. So it is, it's very valuable to have a little bit of knowledge in that regard. I like how you say the story has to make sense. And there's a, there's a through line. It keeps saying sponsor the market and then the deal. And the, and the through line has to be the story has to make sense all the, all the way through that. And, and I, I really like looking at it that way. 
going back to the sponsor, you had said there's no real one metric that would maybe kick a deal out because there's always some kind of explanation for it. But if you're looking at a sponsor, is there any question that you would ask that if they say yes or no to that that just kicks that you're not going to invest that sponsors or something that they could do that means that's just a no-go for that sponsor? Well, I suppose if they had a criminal record, that might be uh, one thing, you know, felony financial crimes would certainly be one. A friend of mine lost her entire life savings investing with a sponsor that she didn't know uh, was a convicted felon for wire fraud, but later found that out in the criminal trial. Uh, He's now in prison for losing millions and millions of dollars of investor money. And of course, you know, there's hundreds of investors out there that, uh, that lost their life savings in that debacle. Uh, so I would say that's that's probably a big one. Uh, you know, it really comes down to character is the one thing. There's no one single answer other than that that I could think of that would say automatically it's a fail. Well, maybe when they tell you it's their first deal, you know, that would that to me would be a, a major red flag. This is a hard one for me too because I know everybody has to start somewhere, and so did I. But first deal risk is an intense amount of risk because people don't even know what they don't know. Uh, and and it's very very dangerous. And and uh, one of the things I always talk about when I talk about trust and their character of the sponsor, the character is revealed over time. You know, as they say, it takes a lifetime to build trust and a second to lose it. This is true in this space, in where you really have to see how this person has done in business over time to really know whether or not you should trust them. And if if this is their first deal. You don't have enough data to know if you trust them. So how does somebody get started is always the next logical question. And I always say you have to find investors that already trust you for some other reason. Uh, you know, your friends and family, you share DNA with them. Whatever those reasons are, that's why they trust you. And that's how you build your track record. But if you're an outside investor and you're going to invest with someone you don't know, if it's their first deal, it's enormously risky for you. Can you talk a little bit about your prospects or what you think 2021 and beyond is going to look like once we hopefully get through the rest of this pandemic and we get vaccinated and things like that? What are you looking for in the um, in the market in the future? Well, we're looking for some pretty robust rent growth in certain markets. Uh, it's an interesting time right now where there's a bit of a K-shaped market taking place where you have markets such as San Francisco that are tumbling like a rock off a cliff. And then you got markets like Phoenix that's like a rocket taking off from SpaceX. So there's no one single storyline here that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different things that are happening out there. But we're looking at markets where, so, so I'm taking data points from, from economists and looking at rent growth forecasts in years 2022 through 2025. I'm investing in markets where the forecast during that time period is above average on a above the national average. Those are markets that we're focusing on. And of course, they just happen to coincide with those markets where people are moving to. So I think that in those places, we're going to see strength in the residential sector. We're going to see rent growth. We're going to see uh, eventually jobs coming back. We're going to see income starting to grow. We might see some inflation which is going to lead to both income growth and, uh, and pricing growth. There's talk about increasing the minimum wage to $15 on a national basis. Could you imagine what that's going to do to rents in like smaller, you know, rural 
flyover state markets, not to mention how uh, that pushes up wages across the entire wage spectrum because somebody that was making $18 an hour and was double the minimum wage isn't going to be happy when they're only $2 over or $3 over the minimum wage. That's going to need to change. So we're going to see some wage growth uh, eventually. And all that's going to lead to uh, pricing pressure. Right now, I think we have some supply side constraint because lenders have been reluctant to fund development projects to add to supply to the extent that they were. So I think some projects got pushed back. Uh, so we might see some uh, temporary supply side constraint in markets that need that supply. And so it's going to be it's going to be really interesting. I, I think uh, if you're really opportunistic and have a iron stomach, there may be opportunities in office and retail and hotel for a variety of different strategies, whether it's repurposing or or just you know rebuilding some of uh, some of those sectors, although again, real, real risky. Uh, but maybe opportunities that wouldn't have been there if there hadn't been a pandemic. But on the resi side, I don't think we're going to see any of that. People were waiting for this big tumble, like, oh, I'm going to wait for prices to fall, and then I'm going to buy. You're going to be disappointed. It seems like you just have to keep buying, right? I mean, you can't wait for the market to drop. You just have to find deals that make sense for you and and keep going. Well, you know, it's you can wait for the market to drop. It just, it, there's a... People have to think broadly when they're thinking about their investment strategy. And we stopped investing in California, I don't know how many years ago, three or four years ago, because I just don't like the way things are going here. And essentially, you could say that I'm just waiting for prices to drop because maybe the day will come when stuff will make sense here again. And prices have already fallen. To me, they haven't fallen enough to get me interested. I heard somebody uh, tell me the other day that uh, he's a financial advisor, big time financial advisor in New York City, and they're estimating that their real estate client's net worth fell 40% since the pandemic because first they got hit by this god-awful rent control uh, law, and then they got hit by the pandemic and everybody leaving the city. That's a massive repricing. Now, I've never invested in New York City. There's no way I would have. The pricing there was absolutely insane. So you could say I was waiting for prices to drop. Maybe a day will come where it's going to make sense to buy there. So I, you know, it's all about trying to find the right property in the right location at the right time. It doesn't mean you always have to wait. It might mean that right now you buy in Phoenix and in two years from now you're buying in Los Angeles and three years after that you're buying in Dallas. It just really depends on where you think the momentum is going and making sure you're in front of it and not on the backside of it. And so for the passive investor, that means you need to find sponsors that are nimble and capable of shifting markets and shifting their perspective on things. I think that's true. And also ones that have survived through market cycles and kind of know what this landscape looks like. Now, every one of these cycles looks a little bit different, but they share a lot of similar characteristics. So having lived through that before gives you an edge. Yeah. Well, listen, you've given us a ton of awesome things to think about, and this has been, been great chatting with you. I usually end with my question, um, what's a great podcast you, you listen to? This one. Of course, there would be no <laughs> better podcast to listen to than this one. You have to catch up on any episodes that you've missed and make sure you subscribe if you're new. Hit that thumbs up button and uh, like and subscribe. That would be my best advice. If you have extra time after listening to this podcast, check out the Bigger Pockets podcast, which is always wildly popular. And, uh, and just go to iTunes, search real estate, and listen to every podcast you can and learn as much as you can about this business. Well, that is by far the best podcast recommendation I've gotten yet. <laughs>
So thank you very much. So if people want to contact you, what's the best way to do that? The best way is to uh, go to our website, which is praxcap.com. That's P-R-A-X-C-A-P.com. Accredited investors can go to investwithpraxis.com to learn about some of our offerings that we have had open. We just closed one, but we'll have more. You can also find me on biggerpockets.com answering questions in the forums, or you can follow me on Instagram at investor Brian Burke. Excellent. I will put that all in the show notes so people can catch up with you. So thank you again for being here. It was really uh, informative and, and we appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. It was fun talking to Brian today. We did talk quite a bit about his book. It's definitely my favorite book on passive investing. I must have taken 12 pages of notes when I read that book. It gives you pointers on evaluating sponsors, markets, and deals, just like Brian did in this podcast. I was interested to hear his take on fund investing versus single asset syndications. Yeah, I typically prefer the single asset model, but an experienced sponsor creating a fund for the right reasons can increase the opportunities a sponsor has for getting new deals and allow diversification for the investor. I really like how Brian explained that the passive investing process isn't passive at all when you're evaluating the sponsor. That is often the most active part as you are trying to ascertain whether or not the sponsor will be acceptable stewards for your capital. It's at this point where passive investors should be most diligent. I also really like that he said, when you hear a sponsor talk, listen, whether it's on a podcast or at an event. See if what they say makes sense. That's a great way to start your due diligence before you schedule a call with them. Brian also talked about looking for new markets and how it's all about population growth, which then causes income growth and job growth, and all of those factor into rent growth, which is what you're looking for. Brian finished with some key metrics to look at when evaluating a deal. Just like in his book, Brian gave us great tips to analyze the sponsor, then the market, and finally the deal. If you haven't read his book, I highly recommend it but hopefully you enjoyed the Cliff Notes version on the podcast today. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.